Sometimes you run into interesting conflicts, like you know, hey, we have this number of people to do the bills. We have this set of goals for the quarter, and we have these ideas that are really、uh, interesting and unique. And no one's doing these. How do we split up the time between those two? How do we prioritize? And it just becomes this very passionate discussion and debate, even, which are actually a lot of fun to be a part of. We're constantly ordering and triaging and reordering things. To make sure that at the end of the day, no one loses sight of the fact that whatever we do, the technology is a means. We are trying to move the business forward. My name is Rishi Dixit, and I'm the Chief Technology Officer at Yield Street. This is Code Story, a podcast bringing you interviews with tech visionaries who share in the critical moments of what it takes to change an industry. And build and lead a team that has your back. I'm your host Noah Labhart, and today, how Rishi Dixit architected a platform to change the way that wealth is created. All this and more on Code Story. Rishi Dixit was born and raised in India. He wrote his first program when he was 13 years old. And then he was hooked on computers. He comes from a family of teachers and bookstore owners, so he was kind of an outlier. And as a kid, having a computer was a luxury that his family couldn't afford. In his undergrad, he studied mechanical engineering, as computer science wasn't available. However, he brought in programming as much as possible. His graduate studies were completed at Cornell, where he worked side by side with Xerox scientists on interesting micro-mechanical system problems. Books have always been a thing for Rishi, loving the tactile sense of holding a book. He also enjoys a good whiskey along with traveling, and he'd love to retire living in Scotland within walking distance of Lagavulin if he can convince his wife to brave the winters in Scotland. He worked for Schlumberger for a while on robotic drilling tools, but then followed the activity in California around the time where the internet was evolving and Google was taking shape. He wanted to be a part of that. Towards the end of his time in San Fran, he worked in fintech. Loving the connection between math, science, and software, he was the founding CTO of LearnVest, which was sold to Northwestern Mutual. And around this time of the sale, he met the founder of his current venture and joined the team as a consultant, and then following as an advisor. During that time, he built out the makings of an alternative investment platform. In fact, the first of its kind. This is the creation story of Yield Street. At the core of it, Ustreet is a well, kind of a first of its kind technology platform for alternative investments. Now, what does that exactly mean? So, typically, as if you're a retail investor, like most of、uh, most of the population here, our choices in terms of how we can grow our wealth or where we can park our money is limited to like your bank accounts, and then you have some fixed income、uh, investments, and you have some, you know, maybe public equity investments in the in the stock market. Whether it's for、uh, short-term income or more commonly, or most commonly for retirement, those are the options that have been traditionally available to retail investors. Now, if you are someone who can write much bigger checks of like five, ten million dollars, you have a wealth of other opportunities available to you in private credit, in asset-based investments. Whether it's real estate, real estate is the only other asset class, if you will, that if you are at a certain point, you have the ability to, you know, whether you buy a house or get an investment property. But there is a large space of possibility out there, which is available to bigger check writers or funds, or hedge funds, or private equity firms. 
And Yieldstreet was born of an idea that this doesn't need to be that way. These are viable diversification opportunities that should be available to everyone, not just for the richest one or 0.1%. And especially coming out of 2007 and 2008, uh, when we saw all of our portfolios take a 50% dip, it was that moment where Webb and Melind uh, and Michael were telling me their vision for Yield Street. It's like, hey, now that the passage of the Jobs Act in 2012 made it possible to open up these kinds of investments to a much more general solicitation, we can actually leverage the power of technology to make these kinds of investments available to a much, much broader audience. So that was the kind of the germ of the idea that created the company. So what we do is we provide these opportunities in various asset classes and real estate, in uh, litigation finance and marine finance and art finance. We have built a technology platform that makes investing in these kinds of uh, investment products as simple as you would, you know, say instance, buy stock in Apple. So we wanted to level the playing field by using technology and the change in legislation that made this possible. What I believe sets Street apart is we are not pinned to any particular kind of asset class, uh, unlike many of the companies like Fundrise. These are great companies, Fundrise, Realty Shares, Realty Mogul. They tend to be focused in a particular kind of asset like real estate. What we have built is the platform that is largely agnostic to the underlying asset class from an end investor standpoint. So you're able to come in and invest in a variety of different kinds of asset classes and access the same kind of opportunities that historically have only been available to bigger funds and more institutional investors. Tell me about the MVP. So tell me about um, how long it took to build and what sort of tools you use to bring it to life. From a coding and building standpoint, we had about a window of six to seven weeks from a blank slate, like no line of code written, to a launchable MVP. So we started the brainstorming on the product. So one of the things that Street, and this is kind of like a, for me, having spent a good amount of time in the startup world, was really refreshing and, and not very common to find is we had a roadmap that Milan shared with me back in 2014 for what the platform can be over a span of like three, four, five years. Here we are like almost six years in and that roadmap has not changed. We haven't had to pivot. There was such a clarity of a true north uh, uh, for the company that even my most recent pre-Yield Street experience with LearnVest, we didn't have that. We had a mission, we had a goal, we had a vision, but the execution path was something that we were often kind of like you know, making some runtime decisions on. From an MVP standpoint, we knew what we wanted to build and we had a very good sense of how to sequence it, at least in the first year to two years. Our beginning started with the whiteboard, like like many of us do, but what, we, what, what, what drove the MVP or what goes into the MVP is what are the signals we're trying to get. If you look at Yield Street from a platform perspective, we're effectively a marketplace, right? We connect retail investors looking for alternative investments with originators who are looking to raise capital to, to then lend out to borrowers, right? We wanted to focus on the investors, which we did. So what we wanted to build was a very streamlined, easy to understand onboarding and journey experience for our investors. In kind of conjunction with that, being as it was a slightly 
different kind of investment. We wanted to build a a content base, a kind of like uh, we actually called it Yale University back then, an educational resource that that informs potential users or investors of what are these, how do they work. So the MVP was kind of like very well shaped uh, in, in terms of what can we build in about six to no more than eight weeks that will not only provide a clear vision of to investors of what it is that the platform does but also give us the data collection and the signals that we wanted to capture to figure out how the how the product roadmap evolves that point on because there's a lot of different things that we can potentially build and obviously with the kind of like you know resource limitations uh, that we have in those early stages we can't do it all it doesn't make even doesn't even make sense to build it all all at once so what is the right sequencing so we need to kind of capture the signals the data the insights that that we want to glean from that mvp to decide which way to evolve it so we focused on the investor we didn't we kind of like put the back office automation stuff which we knew we would build at some point at scale we put that aside like let's not worry about that right now let's just figure out if you were an investor coming into this kind of somewhat new world of investing what is it that would uh, get the user in inform her educate her on what this is and provide a very smooth onboarding and investing experience and that's what we doubled down on and that's exactly what we launched with we had a we had a storefront with with some initial investment offerings that we had uh, already sourced and we built some content around it and we built a very streamlined onboarding flow and an investment flow and everything else was offloaded to manual work because we didn't have any scale what we benefited from was that clarity of where we want to end up in 4 to 5 years having that clarity is both critical and rare it's 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 hard to know we had a and we continue to have a, a clear vision of where this can and should end up in 5 6 7 years what that allowed us to do in the mvp aside from building the very basic set of things that we wanted to launch with was build in some abstractions into the platform at that point by which i mean like okay well at some point we want to automate the movement of funds okay well let's build a provider type abstraction where we can plug in a sort of dummy provider to pretend like the the real thing is sitting behind it and moving the funds around and then we actually eventually integrated with a payment automation uh, provider we just kind of plugged in that library or that that service that we built into that provider abstraction so we had some benefit there of forward looking clarity that allowed us to kind of put the breadcrumbs in the mvp that we knew we would eventually go and build out kind of in a fully fleshed out way that makes sense you had the vision and you had also some you know some experience from creating software building solutions and things you sort of knew how to lay the pieces out and then you abstracted the things that you thought you would need in the future dive in a little bit to maybe one or two of the decisions and trade-offs you had to make so maybe around some of those abstractions that made life a little harder in the short term and how did you cope with those decisions so let's let, let me take a very specific example the kind of investment products the, uh, that Hill Street offers they are debt based investment products right so they're sort sort of fixed income products and like the public markets which fluctuate you know these provide a, a more or less fixed yield over a certain period of time um obviously like 
every investment there is risks and everything but the debt based investments at the core of it you have an engine that is calculating a payment schedule right you put in a certain amount of money into an offering and you have a payment schedule that defines how you would get payments based on the yield and term profile of that offering so we could have done the let's say quote unquote wrong thing and built out that entire engine for calculating the the waterfall for for the payments but we didn't we basically just captured the base parameters and uh, we provided a way to sort of upload an externally computed water uh, waterfall into the system that could then be used to kind of drive the investment management part of it and at that point we were launching a product that was uh relatively new and unknown to the investment community uh, at least the retail investment community we knew that at some point if this takes off this is going to be a a bottleneck in scale what can we build in in the mvp that knowing that this this would need to be built out and fleshed out as a fully automated engine at some point what can we what are the kind of uh little bolts and nuts that we can put in that would make it not easy but at least doable in a in a in a logical way so that was the that was one of the one of the early kind of cutting corners sort of decisions that we made that as soon as we started noticing the traction that we were getting on the platform we went through a significant build uh of the actual engine uh that now powers all of our back office functions and there was uh there was an interesting challenge there to build this at the same time kind of manage the growing uh scale of the investor base so okay we we started off with like maybe whatever 10 15 investors and now we're suddenly scaling up to post 100 investors even with this engine what is the minimal engine that we can build that will handle this influx of people and then we can start building on top of it as the offerings got more and more complex there there was a there was a period of time when we were building out the v1 of the engine where we were kind of balancing out the the actual tech effort required to build the engine and the back office manual effort that was required to handle the the influx of investors that we were getting it all worked out eventually because we started off with some assumptions or some invariance for the for the engine that we built in that that didn't cover the long tail but it covered the meaty part of the curve like you know 90% of our offerings were addressable by the v1 of the engine that we built and the other 10% we would still kind of sort of gracefully degrade to manual processing as we started sourcing more and more interesting kind of products for for our investors they started getting more and more complex and we actually had to go back to the drawing board a couple of years ago to kind of redo it from ground up to handle to add in those uh, levers of flexibility that we didn't have the time or the resources to build in in in, in the v1 of the engine Uh, you can always like in hindsight you can always say hey if we'd made this configurable or that configurable this would have been a lot more uh, a lot easier but sometimes you just kind of have to make a judgment call you know like you know well we we don't have we don't have nearly the scale or the, the variety of offerings right now to to expand the technical effort with the team of four or five engineers that we have does it make sense to invest all that effort right now or should we just focus on growing our uh, investor base and stay, stay with the kind of offerings that we currently have. Uh, so this is the balancing act that continues today. You know, it, it never really goes away and that's okay, you know. So you kind of touched on how you progress the product, but how did you go about building the roadmap of what's the next most important thing to build? And, you know, was that a customer feedback thing? Was it 
intuition? Was it a balance of the two? Walk me through that a little bit. So it's actually a combination of different things. Ultimately, there's an underlying mantra that exists today and will exist forever. And like we, we're not blessed with Google or Facebook-sized teams that can work on many, many different things at once. Mantra is always like, what moves the business forward? And that seems kind of like naive or simple enough, but it, it's actually tricky to draw, like connect the dots and draw the line from what are the KPIs that drives a business forward, whether whether it's uh, the AUM on the platform, the number of investors, the number of new investors, what are we what are we trying to hit on a quarterly or annual basis? Like what are the key numbers that will demonstrate a healthy and growing business? And it kind of trickles down from there. Let's say, so there is there is a inventory, there is a backlog of God knows at this point, like closer to two dozen different things that we want to build. Each of those things can be looked at and should be looked at from, from lens of what number is this moving the needle on if we build this right now? To take an example, right? You know, okay, well, we wanted to, let's say we, so right now the platform is primarily for what's called an, what's called accredited investors. This is an SEC designation that requires you to have a certain, you know, financial situation, like whether it's uh, income or net worth. Essentially, it's built in for investor protection by the SEC. So you need to make at least $200,000 uh, in income on an annual basis for the last two years, or you need to have a net worth of a million dollars to be able to invest in most, not all, but most of our offerings today. This is a friction point, right? Now, it's one of the metrics that we are trying to hit is uh, the number of investors, repeat investments or new investors. What are the detractors from that? It's a number of different things. So, but there is a set of products that we are contemplating that will play a, uh, without going into too much detail, the, the accreditation verification is a somewhat friction-filled process. It's, it put, puts a bunch of requirements on the investor side to prove their accreditation. Now, if we can figure out a way, uh, which we have, if we can automate that part, we take that friction point away, it will actually uh, reduce the churn of investors. So if we have a, an, a quarterly goal of increasing the number of active investors uh, or reducing the churn in investors uh, by X percent or having Y number of investors, we, we, can pro we would prioritize this product that we know will directly impact that number. So ultimately, it, it kind of boils down to what are the different products that we can, uh, we can build that move the business forward. That's one, that's a big one. The second thing is, unlike 2015 when we started, there's a lot more players in this space now. They're doing interesting things. They're really good companies. So how do we stay on the uh, on the cutting edge in terms of innovation? So that is the other key driver to how we order and prioritize our product roadmap. Sometimes you run into interesting kind of like conflicts, like, you know, hey, we have this number of people to do the bills. We have this set of goals for the quarter and we have these ideas that will that are kind of like really uh, interesting and unique and no one's doing these. So how do we split up the time between those two? How do we prioritize? And it just it becomes this very passionate discussion and debate even, which are actually a lot of fun to be a part of where we decide, okay, well, this is going to take, you know, this is a quick win that we can quickly roll out and, and we'll, we'll be able to uh, kind of like create this very interesting feature on this existing flow that will delight our investors. So it becomes this math of like, what is the effort level and what is the impact, the perceived or expected impact of that? And we do this 
on a quarterly basis we do this on a sprint by sprint basis we're constantly kind of ordering and triaging and reordering things to make sure that at the end of the day no one loses sight of the fact that whatever we do the technology is a means it's we are trying to move the business forward and we are trying to serve our investors the best we can and at the same time stay ahead of our competition let's switch over a bit to team tell me about how you built your team and what you looked for in those people to indicate that they were the winning horses to join you that's a great question and it's it's actually I wish there was a nice 10 second sound bite answer but really my whole kind of outlook on this but not just in youth street but even in past similar leadership roles has been just hire people that are smarter than you you know and and smarter and not just in terms of technical skills uh because at this point i can safely say that the team that we have built here at Yield Street they're collectively and individually much smarter than i am it's just the reality and beyond the the raw technical skills they have this itch this 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 passion this constant desire and constant thirst to know more to learn more to explore and uh if you get a set of people that embody this this almost yearning to to get better all the time to constantly move their own knowledge as well as the platform forward the next thing you do is simply get out of the way give them air cover and get out of the way the team at Yield Street started much similar to many startups we started building out a team in in Brazil where which which is still where we have the biggest chunk of our team unlike a classic kind of outsourcing relationship that typically companies tend to have certainly bigger companies they are part of our team they are fully empowered to make decisions to provide input not just on the technology but also on the product itself like ask questions like why are we building this why are we building it this way why can't we do it that way you get a set of really smart and driven people and you give them you empower them to uh, have a voice in the decisions that we make and uh, you give them the space to do their best work nothing beats that the amount of creativity that comes out of not just engineers but you know designers and product people and data engineers and uh we have what we call a pdt complex here at yosri which is really product design data and tech and they're all like this one symphony and me and my compadre on the product side our chief product officer our primary role is to provide some guidance some direction some rationale on where we are trying to go what we're trying to do and then essentially empower them to make the decisions that we that need to be made to drive the both the platform and through the business forward obviously we we need to establish the technical competency so we have our own coding challenges and like our our screening process to just gauge the tech skills and tech chops but beyond that what we look for is like hey what do you do outside like what are some of the most interesting things products systems that you build that you that you've used that you wish you had built let's pick one of those and tell me what you like about it tell me what you don't like about it and how would you rebuild it so kind of like tapping into that that creative side of the team members and and seeing what they can bring to the table beyond just the raw ability to design and code systems and it's worked worked out really well you know if i look back on what i'm most proud of in terms of what i built certainly here at hill street and how how the same thing with learnvest the platform is great it's very forward looking it's it's very scalable and all that that's that's wonderful but it's really the team that we built here they're they're the ones who move the company forward So let's talk about scalability then a little bit. 
Was this built to scale efficiently from the beginning, or is this something you're kind of fighting as you grow? Of course, we had microservices from day one, and everything everything was just you know perfectly flowing between different. I'm just kidding. Listen, I, I sort of benefited from some hindsight uh, of mistakes that I made in past lives, uh, certainly in LearnVest days from a scalability standpoint. So I was able to avoid a bunch of those, just kind of bring those learnings from failures, which are obviously the best teachers ever. So was it built to be scalable from day one? I wouldn't say that because I, I honestly, anyone who says that is probably embellishing the truth a little bit. That said, there are certain touch points, some some invariants that will guarantee lack of scalability, right? So we made sure to avoid those to the extent possible. So if you think about scale, so there's two different levels, actually three different levels of scale, but let's talk about the two main ones. One is just the platform scale itself. Can it handle an ever-increasing traffic? Is it built to, to go from like, a hundred investment requests coming in per second to a hundred thousand investment requests coming in per second. Was it built to do that on day one? No, it wasn't. Did we know how to evolve it to get to that point? Yes. So we left some trail markers uh, in the early builds of the software to kind of like make sure that, hey, if you get to this point, make sure that this thing gets split out into, into, a, into a separate service that is asynchronous. So there are certain principles that we stood by, starting with the choice of the framework that we use. So the, the platform is largely a Java and Scala platform on the, on the core side and uh, the data side is, is Python. But we made sure that some of the, some of the known bottlenecks to scale, relational databases, blocking calls, synchronous calls were avoided as much as possible and only resorted to when there was no other alternative. Like, you know, okay, well, if you're logging in, that call probably needs to be synchronous just to know whether to let the user in or not. Does anything else anywhere in the overall platform need to be synchronous? Most likely not. So we put in a message broker from, from early uh, from early days. We, we built in asynchronous processing from the very beginning. The way we did it evolved over time because, you know, Aside from everything else, new technology became available that wasn't available when we started building it. But we, we put in the markers in the early builds to, to make sure it was built to eventually, it could be evolved to a more scalable platform. Were we successful? Yes and no. Some parts of it were, some parts we had to redo. Uh, but overall, I think uh, we made some some good choices early on from a framework and architecture standpoint that have benefited us today. Others, we had to go through a bit of a rebuild, maybe about a year and a half ago, where we took took this uh, almost paradigm shift in the architecture itself. Like we, we moved from having a more traditional kind of CRUD MVC sort of architecture to a more event sourced reactive architecture. We shifted the focus of the relational database away from being the source of truth to being a snapshot in time. And the source of truth is now our event journal. So it's kind of like a, this this very beautiful concept, which frankly, I was not fully exposed to. And, and this, this kind of, it's an interesting tie back to the team. Some of the more senior architects in our team actually did a bunch of research uh, and read up a bunch of interesting articles and said, hey, Here's this framework that is built on top of our existing framework that forces us to build things in, a, in an event source reactive way. 
let's switch to that as we start rebuilding pieces of our platform. We borrowed the time almost from the product gods and said, hey, give us a little time to do a little bit of refactoring around here so we can actually move to this new paradigm of building. And that will give us the, the right kind of scalability, which primarily translates to being able to scale purely with hardware. Software, if you cannot, if your software is not scalable, it doesn't matter how much you burn in monthly AWS costs you're going to crash, which we did in 2017, which was kind of like our uh, inflection point for re-examining our platform architecture and starting to make those structural changes. And then the other kind of scale is just human scale. Like we offloaded the building of back office software automation to a later point of time. in time. Now we have tens of thousands of investors. Obviously, we're not going to be able, like, you know, we are, we are at a point where unless the back, uh, back office systems are largely automated, if not fully automated, we're not going to be able to handle that scale. So we actually started building out all of that automation three years ago. And now we are able to scale. We were able to scale to our current level and will be able to beyond this without having to scale our back office operations team to like hundreds of thousands of people. We have two people in our investment operations group that handle, you know, tens of thousands of investors and who knows how many millions of dollars in flow and fund flows in, in all kinds of directions. So those were the things that we put in both from an architecture standpoint, as well as a product roadmap standpoint. So it's like, hey, when we hit this inflection point, we should double down and start building out the automation, back office automation for this so we can handle the, the operational scale of the platform, not just the, the architectural scale itself. So as you step out on the balcony and you look across all that you've built, what are you most proud of? It's my team. You know, it's, uh, I mean, I, I really do like the state of the platform, the way it is today. It's a nice symphony of microservices, talking over Kafka and all of that, which is great, but it's all credit to the team that we've built here. That's the one thing that I'll, uh, I'll be more proud of than anything else, because we are, we are nothing without, uh, not uh, without this team and not just their technical abilities, but their raw passion and desire to build the best platform there is you know it all stems from there so i like to say that like you know i've i've achieved i'm i'm close to achieving my goal of making myself largely redundant and if i can get to that point i know i've done something right because now the team that's assembled is equally invested and equally excited about doing the build and 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 evolving the platform i don't need, i didn't need to drive them, they're self-driving. And I'm learning from them. I'm a much better engineer today because of the team that I've built. Uh, and I'm not even coding anymore. <laughs> well, let's flip the script a little bit. Tell me about a mistake you made and how you and your team responded to it. Well, we did use an OR mapping framework in the early days. And uh, okay, that's, a, that's a little uh, geek specific answer. It was actually true. It was a mistake that I made in, in the MVP. Despite having told myself to not do that, because that's something that bit us in LearnVest days as well. I think a, a key mistake that I would say that I wish I had addressed earlier is less about the technology and, and, and more, more on the team again. Uh, as good as a team is, you're always going to have some misfits in the team, right? You know, uh, for various reasons. Uh, sometimes the competency gap, sometimes it's in, uh, it's, they're just not good team players. We have had a small number of those. And uh, I would say the, the mistake on my part was not 
addressing that situation as promptly as I should have because you know it causes a general viscous drag on the entire team like you know even if even a single underperformer or not so much a team player will cause a drag on the team and that's that's kind of like that's like the biggest uh, mistake i would say from a yield street standpoint in past lives i made much bigger technical mistakes and but like i said uh, I, i was able to bring those learnings into yield street so thankfully not too many big mistakes on the pure technical front <laughs> so far well there's still time to make them <laughs> so what does the future look like for the product and for your team we have our work cut out for us in 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 many ways from a pure product and platform build out standpoint there is so we started off the company uh with a with the mission and a vision of expanding investment opportunities to a much broader audience now we barely scratched the surface of that right now like i said we primarily serve accredited investors but we certainly do not want to stop there we want to expand it to an increasing uh uh investor base beyond just accredited investors So if you look at the financial typical financial life today in America the point of time where you start getting enough or you accumulate enough investable capital to invest in these kinds of offerings has been like you know even before yield street or companies like yield street came around it would be like you know in the 60s like you know when you know you're almost you're close to retirement almost the mission has always been to pull that time in a person's age lower and make these available at a increasingly younger age so you can start growing wealth much sooner and now how we achieve that is by expanding the suite of our products beyond what we started off with so that is an ongoing mission and as as we speak we are exploring about four or five which I'm not at liberty to talk about in too much detail but we are constantly looking to expand the space of products uh from a point of view of what audience we want to serve with those what kind of diversification do we want to offer to our audience like what kind of risk aversion do we want to uh, do we want what ranges of risk aversion do we want to provide across our suite of products so that's that's kind of an ongoing thing newer and newer products new kind of asset classes Once we start building out these different kinds of products the next thing to do is start connecting the dots between those products which so we kind of start segueing into things like advisory financial planning or making it more uh, automated and self-driving where investors wouldn't necessarily have to make their own choices of whether we want to invest in this art offering that marine offering but really more from a goal standpoint like you know what 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 are you looking for short term income long term retirement and then coming up with you know the kind of stuff that you see today with things like betterment but like really bringing it to the alternative investment space and from a team standpoint and of course we want to uh, we want to uh, go beyond serving just us based uh, investors but there is also the other parties that the platform serves the originators our our own internal stakeholders like we build software for not just our investors but also our investment operations group our investor relations group there's a ton of homegrown software that we built to serve our internal audiences and so we continue building on 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 those increasing increasingly automating their life so that they're able to better serve uh, our investors and all of this kind of translates into a scaling team uh, on the product and tech side where you know we today have a fairly lean team as our stakeholder space continues to grow we'll need to build more and more software and we need to build teams that are kind of purpose built for specific audiences there's a lot more build left and a lot more uh, audiences and and users to serve so uh, i think we'll be fairly busy for the next 3 to 4 even 5 years 
Let's switch to you, Rishi. Who influences the way that you work? You know, CEO, a CTO, architect, really any person. Name a person you look up to and why. Really, the, the, the set of people that I'm the most awed by are really the creators in, uh, of this tech world that we know and live in. Like, you know, these are like unassuming geniuses that uh, we really stand on their shoulders, like Brian Kernigan and Dennis Ritchie and Ken Thompson and Surf. They build the foundation. We would be nothing without them. Like I was just recently uh, hearing this podcast with uh, with Brian Kernigan, which frankly I was I, I didn't even know he was still alive. But it was fascinating to hear uh, from him like the the early story of how Unix was created, and he just kind of like said it like you know yeah he just made a cup of coffee. You know, it's like so humble and unassuming and like nothing would be possible without the kind of work uh, that these guys did in the 60s and the 70s. How it influences the way I work. I mean, I certainly would be way, way too presumptuous for me to kind of like draw any kind of line between me and that and these giants. But but it really it boils down to a, a simple thing. You got to really, really passionately love what you do. Everything else just kind of like naturally falls, falls into place if you have that. I don't even know what to say beyond that, but like, you know, it, it's really like these, these are the, uh, these are my almost heroes, you know? So if you could go back to the beginning, what would you consider doing differently or where would you consider taking a different approach? I thought about this a lot. Uh, there, there was this uh, paper, now it's kind of become a classic, but it was published in, uh, in 2015 called and it's called Immutability Changes Everything, which is a nice, catchy, almost like clickbaity title. But it's a brilliant paper. What it talks about is really the, the shift in architectural paradigm that we introduced in the U3 platform not too long ago. If I were to dial back to 2015 and start building this platform again, I would build it in this event source, reactive way of building systems. Like I was weaned on this, right? You know, it's like I built software, I built web-based systems in the in the late '90s and and early 2000s. When all of this, this the, these were the theoretical concepts. They no no one had actually commoditized them to the point where we could start building real systems with those, or at least I wasn't aware of them. I would just I would love to rebuild the platform from the ground up to the way it's evolved right now, where kind of like almost divorce the idea of your database relational database being your source of truth. If you'd said this to me five years ago, even it's like, ah, what are you talking about? Like, you know, what else can be the source of truth? But if you think about it from, if you think about systems from a real world perspective, the immutable, unshakable truth is the time series of things that have happened. That's immutable, that you cannot change history, right? That these events happen. The, the way things appear at any given point of time are the consequence of a series of things that have happened to make it that way, right? So if you think of a relational database, which is a snapshot in time of a state of a system, and it's almost like counterintuitive now for me to think of that as the source of truth. And in fact, the source of truth is not that. It's the series, the sequence of events that has led up to the database being in whatever state it is in. So that sequence of events that log your time series of events is your source of truth and it has to be and it is immutable and if you make that your source of truth any snapshots in time can be reconstituted can be recomposed simply by replaying the sequence of events so theoretically i can blow away my entire database today and replay the sequence of events from kafka and and get it back to exactly the state it was in before it was blown away so this is kind of like a new way of thinking about systems it has the added benefit of actually 
they having enough commoditized software that makes this possible with highly opinionated microservice frameworks like Lagom and having a truly, truly industri- uh, like industrial grade uh, message broker like Kafka, which is a lot more than a message broker actually. It's possible to do that. And these bits, the concept, these frameworks, these existed in 2015. I was simply unaware of them at that time. So that's one thing I would redo because we are realizing the benefits of that architecture today, both from a point of view of scalability, observability, recovery from issues or failures. And it's just a beautiful thing to see. I, I wish I could do that right from the get-go. You're getting on a plane, and you're sitting next to a young entrepreneur who's built the next big thing. They're jazzed about it. They can't wait to show it off to the world. They can't wait to show it off to you right there in the plane. What advice do you give that person having gone down this road a bit? You know, it's, it seems a tad presumptuous for me to give uh, entrepreneurial advice to someone having not personally been an entrepreneur, but I've been on founding teams, and I'll... I'll give it a shot from that perspective. Um, there's two things, really. One is whatever it is that you're building, you've got to want it, like want it bad. Like this, ha- the passion for building comes in many ways, in large part, from wanting to use the product that you are building because it doesn't exist and you wish you had it. And this is kind of like a slightly different way of saying love what you're doing, but it, it's really about you have to be your product's first user. It's not always possible if you're building an enterprise product, but I've mostly been in consumer-facing products, so that's kind of my perspective a little bit. If you feel that, oh my God, I wish I had this. I wish I, like, I feel that way about LearnVest. I feel that way about YieldStreet. I wish I had YieldStreet in 20, 2008 when my IRAs dropped. Uh, let's say that's a baseline, that's table stakes, right? Be very picky with your starting team. You are not going to have all the skills needed to build the business and that's okay that's actually the way it should be you know your strengths but also you know your know your gaps no and get based on the product that you're building find true stars almost to fill in the gaps that you yourself have that you need to fill to build their product uh, to give you an example like you know uh if you're building an api player right and you're not a technical person but you realize the benefit of having an api the first person you probably want to hire in your founding team is a seasoned architect or who can be a founding CTO. You probably don't need a CMO right off the right in the starting team, but you know, you definitely need that CTO who's built a SaaS product or an API product before. It's a lean team. You're going to have a short window of time to uh, to demonstrate something to, to your audience, to the capital markets, everyone. So be very, very choosy about your starting team. And if you have a certain pool of money to spend, rather spend that on a really lean team of superstars who can who can help you realize your vision rather than just like, you know, getting a, a large team of engineers or, um, or designers that will build like, you know, something that will look good, but really they're not invested or passionate about what it is that you're trying to do. Those are really like your starting team is everything. You can, can make, make or break your enterprise. That's fantastic advice. Well, Rishi, thank you for being on the show today. Thank you for telling the creation story of Yield Street. Thank you. This has been a really wonderful experience, and I really enjoyed chatting with you. And this concludes another chapter of Code Story. Code Story is hosted and produced by Noah Laphart. Be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcasting app of your choice. Support the show on patreon.com slash codestory for just five to ten bucks a month. 
And when you get a chance, leave us a review. Both things help us out tremendously. And thanks again for listening.